In the name of God, amen. amen. Please be seated. Good morning, St. Margaret. My goodness, I've never known so many people who look stunning in red. (laughs) For those of you I've not had the privilege of meeting personally yet, my name is Marianne Buddy, and for the last three years now, I have been privileged to serve as the the bishop of this diocese, the Diocese of Washington, and I bring you greetings from your 88 sister congregations throughout the District of Columbia and the four counties of Maryland that are also a part of our diocese. That would be Montgomery County, Prince George's, Charles, and St. Mary's to the south. And, um, and I, I, I've been looking forward to this day for a long time. I hold uh, your good rector in the highest esteem. I really enjoyed getting to know Anne, your new associate. And I, I work so closely with so many of you in various endeavors across the diocese and the community. And it's a great great privilege to to be with you at St. Margaret's, especially on a day like today. I was looking at your website, and I think the line was, each each event today could be a Sunday in itself, and here we've just (laughs) smooshed them all into one. St. Margaret's Day, Consecration Sunday, and the bishop coming, so... (laughs) But, you know, I'm especially honored to be here on Consecration Sunday the day when you dedicate to God and to God's purposes uh, your offerings and intentions, your lives um, for the coming year. It was um, in the parish I served for 18 years in Minnesota. When we we came upon this Consecration Sunday model of thinking about stewardship and about our lives and about money and the church, it it took all of that sort of dreaded stewardship season and put it into a spiritual context that we could all embrace and celebrate. And I, um, I was talking to Kim about this and looking on your website, and it seems like that that's been the effect for you as well. And, and, I, and I, I give thanks to God for that and, uh, and the chance to be with you on the day when you especially celebrate the gift of your community this community, uh, St. Margaret's Episcopal Church. To speak about what consecrates our lives certainly drives home the fact that, that it's a lot more than a church pledge drive. Because to consecrate something is to get dedicated to a holy purpose. And when we think about that in terms of who we are, And the first question that comes to my mind anyway is, why would we do that with only a part of who we are? For surely God would invite us to consider the gift of all of our life and the choices we make every day as to where we best spend our energies and spend our time and invest our resources Certainly, as a species, we're becoming aware that the global implications of those choices are all the more urgent. But, you know, there's an individual urgency as well, I think, that uh, comes home to us from time to time. There's a, an, a story that I think about all the time. It's, it's from the author Anne Lamott. You may know her. She, um, she writes of a time when she went shopping for a new dress with her friend Pam, who was dying of cancer. And uh, 
Anne was going on a date with a new beau, and she wanted a new dress, and Pam came along, and Anne found this dress that she thought was pretty nice, um, and she went outside of the dressing room, and she was kind of fishing for a compliment, and so she twirls around, and she says to Pam, Pam, do you think this dress makes me look fat? <laughs> and Pam, sitting in a wheelchair, looks up to her and says, Annie, I don't think you have that kind of time. You know? And a few years ago, I found myself tied up in knots inside by the way someone had treated me at a meeting. And I realized that I was totally intimidated by this person. You know, like everything about this person intimidated me. And as I was thinking about it, this question came to me, and it, it felt like it was coming from God or maybe from the depth of my soul or, or maybe both. How long, Marianne, are you going to allow certain people to have that kind of power over you? And I heard Mary Oliver's, the poet's haunting question, tell me, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? To live a consecrated life, to take all of our life and set it before God for holy purposes. But this is Pledge Sunday after all. <laughs> and in a consecrated life, there is the matter of money, which is not always easy for us to talk about and therefore all the more important. And as I read on your website, and I asked the congregation I served um, more than once, what portion do you suppose of our financial resources God invites us to give away? I've known poverty in my life, not the grinding poverty that is the plight of too many in our world, but I know what it feels like to really worry about money, like all the time. And as a teenager, I watched my family disintegrate in large measure under financial strain. So I've, I've been in that place, do you know, where the lack of sufficient money seems to color everything about my life. And um, thanks now to the ministry entrusted to me in this diocese and the hard work of my husband, I'm much more financially secure, indeed uh, fabulously wealthy by the standards of the world. And I know then the privilege and the responsibility that comes with that. In fact, I'm mindful of that every day, knowing that to whom more is given, more is expected. And the statistics on all of this couldn't be more clear 
that those with less money give a greater percentage of their money away than those who are wealthy. It's just blatantly clear wherever you look that the poor are far more generous, proportionately speaking, than the wealthy. And so the question of how much money to give away takes on urgency the more money we have. And the tithe, for me at least, has been a benchmark, uh, a threshold that I, I, I'm mindful of, knowing that I am called to give far more than that, but at least that every year. Um, then there's the question of where to give. How much of that percentage, of the percentage that I give away, would I feel called to give to any one place? Um, the local church, when I served a local church, now is your bishop serving your bishop. These are just questions that, as Christians, we, we, we wrestle with. And it has to be something that we hold, I think, in light of that all of life perspective, and then the particular values that we want to embody in the world. And as a priest, I never assumed that members of my congregation would give all of their portion to the church. That actually would feel like too much pressure, right? But to be worthy of some of that portion felt like our collective task. Um, and I feel that same way, by the way, as your bishop. So we make a spiritual decision at some point in life to think intentionally about our resources and to dedicate a portion of that. And then we think about our church and we ask ourselves how much of that portion, which is dedicated to the holiness of God or the work of God or making the world a better place, how much of that will go to St. Margaret's? Adam Hamilton is a Methodist minister in Kansas City, and I, I like to um, study him as a minister because he's one of those rare people that started a church 10 years ago that is now over 7,000 members. You know, and that, I just find that impressive. And, um, and in a mainline tradition, rather unusual, right? So I, um, I study him a fair amount. And he had a, 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 a schema that I found fascinating about this, just thinking about church and money and who we are. And he said, I always ask my, um, when I'm, whenever I'm in the company of other Christians, and particularly Christian leaders, I ask them to consider these three questions. Um, the first question is, why do people need Jesus Christ? And the second question is, why do people need the church? And then the third question is, why would the people in your community need your church? And his thesis is, if we're not clear about the answers to those questions, we're going to be unclear about why our church matters. 
right? So I was thinking about that this weekend as I was coming here. So let's start with the first question. Why do we need Jesus? Who is Jesus for you and for me? There's a world of difference between knowing a lot of things about Jesus and knowing Jesus, believing certain things about him and believing in him. The two are related, of course. You can't believe in him if you don't know anything about him, and you have to have certain convictions about him. You get my point. But the difference between knowing things about Jesus and knowing Jesus is sort of the difference between reading about love and falling in love or studying rock climbing and being up there on the ledge, leaning back with a rope around your waist connected to the person beneath you. So I ask you for a moment just to consider both what you know about this amazing man who he was and what he taught when he walked on our earth and how he lived with such holy extravagance that people began to say to themselves in his presence, you know, if God were walking on earth, I think that's what God would look like. And the events that led to his death that we commemorate each week when we gather around this altar and the miracle of resurrection and how death could not hold him. Think of all the things you know about this man. And then think about what it means for you to believe in him. Has your life ever been on the line and his presence saved you? Have you ever been at the end of your rope And his strength sustains you. When your capacity to love is all used up, has his love ever carried you? Why do we need Jesus? Could we live a life without him? Sure. But once you've been drawn into his orbit, Why would you want to? That line from scripture comes to mind for me when the disciples are with him and and the crowds are starting to leave Jesus because he's just saying some stuff that's really not making any sense to them anymore. And he looks at his disciples and he says, well, do you want to go too? It's almost like giving them permission to leave, right? He's just, do you also want to go away? And Peter speaks up and says, where would we go? You know? Where would we go? You have the keys of eternal life. As if to say, we're in. We've come too far not to stay with you now. Do you know that about him for yourself? And can you understand the value of Communities like ours that hold that possibility for others. Why do we need Jesus? 
Why do we need the church? I'm sure there are, question, there are days when you ask yourself that question. Why do I need the church? Right. Well, if it's any comfort to you, it was Jesus' idea all along. We were called into community. He always wanted his followers to be in community. Um, some people say, so I always think it's the funniest thing. Maybe, Kim, you can smile at this too. People say, I hate organized religion. And you think, organized? <laughs> it's not the first word that comes to my mind, but hey. But consider the alternative. The alternative is a faith that isn't connected to anything or anybody. It doesn't have any accountability. It doesn't have the encouragement of others. It doesn't have support in times of need. It doesn't have insights that others don't have. And perhaps most important, it doesn't have the capacity that Christians gathered together can offer the world that we could never do on our own, right? That when 10 of us get together and we offer, what we have is multiplied a hundredfold and so forth. The church is the vehicle through which Grace can be manifest in ways far greater than ourselves. Yes, our imperfections can be manifest as well, but the grace surely is worthy of all that we can offer. And why, for heaven's sakes, the Episcopal Church? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I was, um, so I was studying other churches that know how to grow faster than the Episcopal Church does and I was hanging out with all kinds of people in you know other congregations, other models, and right around the time when Jean, Con- Jean Robinson was consecrated bishop, right? Do you all remember that? Those of you who were around those days, 2003. I was in Minneapolis at the time, and the convention was in Minneapolis, so it was like front page news every day. And I was talking to this Lutheran pastor friend of mine who had this enormous church that I I really learned a lot from in terms of just how you grow a church. And he looked at me and he said, now, why did you guys do that? Why would you put yourself in the middle of a controversy that is just going to tear your church apart? And I remember looking at him and looking at his church and thinking of my church and the gay and lesbian families that were there and the kids growing up and my kids, you know, whose first three weddings they could possibly remember were gay and lesbian weddings and they wondered if boys and girls still got married, and I, you know, I just, I, I, and, and, could, and could boys be priests? I mean, it was just one of those, you know, those great moments. And I remember looking at this pastor saying to him in my head, I didn't say this out loud, someday you're going to thank us. Someday you are going to, I'm thanking you right now for what you're teaching me. Someday you are going to thank us. And I was at a meeting just this week, and a a woman said, not about the Episcopal Church, but she could have said it about the Episcopal Church. She was saying it about the UCC. She said, look, and she was like 30 years old, and she said, I grew up in a lesbian household, and the UCC church in our neighborhood was the only church that welcomed us. And do you know what that meant for me and my family? And I remember thinking, that's it. I'm part of a church that was willing to go first in a time when it wasn't easy. And now the culture is catching up with us and thanking us. But at the time, we were willing to go first. And that was one. It's like, I'm not going to flaunt it. We have lots of faults as the Episcopal Church, but there are some things that just make me proud. 
And I hope you are proud, too. I hope you were proud of our National Cathedral this week when it welcomed, when it welcomed for the first time Muslims coming in to pray their prayers in our cathedral. And maybe some of you read about other Christians who wondered why we would do such a thing. And I, I don't want to be haughty about that. I don't want to be mean-spirited about that. But I want to say to our Christian brothers and sisters, this is one way to be Christian. And we believe this is what God has called us to be and to do. Aren't you proud in moments like that? to be part of a church that holds that view of humility and curiosity and tolerance. That's the best of who we are. Rooted in Jesus, open to the world. And why, St. Margaret's, why when you filled out your pledge card for this coming year were you proud to be part of a community like this planted as you are on this corner that was once farmland and now the pulse of this city, representing all the marvelous diversity that I see in this room and all that you stand for and all that you hold and all the promise that is yours. Don't you feel part of something amazing being here? And isn't it worthy of the portion that you set apart to God for holy purposes. I thank you for that. My favorite story in the Bible is the loaves and fishes story. And I want you to think about that as you offer your pledges today, that God will take your offering and mine and all of ours, and we will offer it as Jesus did. And from that offering, God will provide miracles of abundance. And perhaps the greatest miracle of all will be how your lives in their entirety will be set aside for holy purposes all of your life, in the time that you have, in the community that you share, in the treasure that is yours, and in the way that Jesus has blessed and loved you and called you to be the holy people of St. Margaret's, stunning in red, (laughs) beautiful to the world, and humble in service as your matron saint was. Let it be so. Amen. Amen.